Hey everyone, uh, I'll keep this very quick for the intro because I ended up actually doing a lot more talking than usual in the upcoming conversation, uh, mostly because I found it so energizing and exciting. It's with the incredibly lovely author and psychologist, Scott Barry Kaufman. We cover a lot of ground on some of the really big questions, things like transcendent experiences, the loneliness epidemic and what might be driving it, what intimacy is and why we avoid it even when we know we need it, system one and system two thinking, first order, second order, and even third order desires, uh, and uh, if utopia is possible, and much, much more. Honestly, I hope you love it as much as I did, and also stick around for my wrap-up at the end because I'm going to try to ask all of you for something for an upcoming episode idea, so I want to see what you think about that. And uh, I also pick up on the thread of the vulnerability and exploitability of transcendent experiences and connect it to the famous Jonestown tragedy and the People's Temple cult. So anyway, you'll see how I uh, try to pull all that off and uh, enjoy season two, episode um, 16. <laughs> By the way, I usually forget what number we're on. I think I did that in the last episode, but this is the 16th episode of season two. So it's called The Silence Beyond Sound with Scott Barry Kaufman. Enjoy. Um, I'm going to start with a graphic that you put in your book uh, with alternate alternate names for transcendent experiences. I'm going to start reading some of them. Yeah, some of them are great. I, I learned some new one, new terms. Yeah. Know. Mystic experience, peak experience, religious, spiritual, and mystical experiences, which I guess is RSMEs. It's sometimes acronym, acronymized. Yeah, that's right. uh, clear light, cosmic consciousness, deautomization, fauna, mystical union, flow experience, optimal experience, elevating experience, God experience, intensity experience, inward light. Uh, living flame of love. I like that. <laughs> love one. fire. Yeah, that's a good one. Numinous experience. Objective consciousness. The peace of God which patheth, passeth all understanding. Quite a mouthful. Uh, samadhi satori. Shamanic ecstasy. The silence beyond sound. And subliminal consciousness. Yeah, I'm so interested so in what, what they all the have in common. Yeah, so like, what the hell are we talking about? <laughs> that's where we're going to start. What is it? There's one in particular that I'm fascinated by or I'm attracted to, but tell me what we're talking about. A little bit about what your ultimate project is, why you wrote the book, that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. When I um, started to set out to write to write this book, it was because I discovered the writings of Abraham Maslow that people weren't aware of. I, I, I came across a lot of his unpublished writings, and many people are familiar with Abraham Maslow through his hierarchy of needs that has self-actualization at the top, but he was actually working towards a, towards he was always working towards higher ceilings of human nature, um, and towards the last couple of years of his life, he was really working on uh, a theory of transcendence and, uh, and arguing that the self-actualization was really just a bridge to transcendence. Mm -hmm. And I... I mean, I've been studying uh, the, the science of human potential for 20 years and uh, studied creativity, studied intelligence. I wrote books on intelligence and creativity. And I just I, I feel like I want to keep pushing the uh, the reaches of of uh, of human uh, of, of human potential as well. You know, I, I'm very curious where, where, where we can push this. And so when I discovered his writings, it really it really lit me up and it gave me purpose for a couple of years as I was working yeah. on the book and uh, really wanted to see if I could come up with a modern day framework for the hierarchy yeah. of needs. 
Yeah, it's really cool. I don't. You've done a ton of podcasts, including your own with Sean Carroll, that I highly recommend. That like lays cool. out a bit of your thesis. Yeah, like so that. I don't want to just you know rehash the book in particular and the thesis of it. I want to try to take this conversation into some a new weird level. directions. Yeah. yeah, a new we'll transcend the the transcendence yeah. conversation. I mean, it's a great book. Everyone should read it. And it's also partially like a weird like love letter to to Maslow himself in this very heartwarming way. Some of it's emotional. You get emotional while, while writing it and reading it. And I think that's kind of amazing. Um, there, were, there was a softness to the way that you write about him that was really kind of beautiful. I always love those kind of pseudo memoirs of other people slash investigations of their work. Um, so I'm very, I'm anyway, I'm a very sentimental person. I know you are. I know you are. So. And it's, anyway, you know, it's, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. yeah. It's an, it's a, you know, the space I'm in this, the space I inhabit, you know, the intellectual space. I don't know if sentimentality is always warranted. Uh, well, sorry, welcome, welcome, but yeah. it is, it is what it is. It is no, who I well, am. What, one, one of the reasons I, was excited to talk to you and wanted to get you on is um, you know kind of the circles that I run in as well I made this film with Sam Harris and Coleman and like I'm plugged into that also intellectual level what's that that frequency you're tuned into that frequency Yeah. yeah although my constant pushback to it is that it needs to be more in conversation with psychology and psychologists and my like if you're looking for a good model that I think we all are all the time, including Maslow, a good model that is predictive of the universe in some way of maybe your own behavior and how things are going to go. We're always sort of, you know, we're pattern seeking animals and we're looking to figure out the pattern. So we know what the next, you know, number is coming down the chute and we could either prepare for it or enjoy it or, or what, or avoid it, whatever it is. And, you know, this, this, maybe sometimes throwaway line that I use is that bad psychology beats good philosophy any day of the week as far as a predictive model of other people's behavior and maybe vice versa that good psychology beats bad philosophy any day of the week and and just because somebody has rejected bad philosophy it does not mean that they have conquered their own bad psychology in any meaningful way and that's really a much harder mountain to climb which I think is also the project that you're on. I, I view them as so complementary, though. I, I guess I don't view them as, uh, you know, like the same scale, you know, with the opposite ends of a pole, but I view mm. them as uh, as parallel uh, uh, dimensions. And a good, you know, I like to think that I'm part philosopher. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm laughing saying that because it's like, I feel like anyone who says they're a philosopher is a douchebag, you know, because they're yes. usually not a philosopher <laughs> if they say that. Totally. Like real yeah. philosophers never actually say I'm a philosopher. Yeah, but, um, it's the most embarrassing thing yeah. to admit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I feel like, um, like, what I appreciate of, about philosophy, my best friend is a philosopher, uh, mm. Elliot Samuel Paul, uh, a great philosopher. And, uh, and I love how deep he is, you know, and I love how thoughtful, thoughtful he is. And I think mm-hmm. that psychology can do you can do the best psychology in the world and 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 uh, and have really tightly controlled scientific studies and and do really fancy statist- statistical analyses um, and it's not be deep at all you know in terms mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. thought or in terms of um, uh, the soul you know like the deep soul yeah. you know and so. I guess I really personally love to bring in philosophy into my psychology because I feel like it enhances yeah. my psychology, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's where we're going with this. I, I think I know the way in, so I'm going to try it. And it's with that list I gave you. 
at least the way that I, I mean, I love what you just said in, in trying to find sort of the merge point between psychology and philosophy and how they ought to inform each other. I, I think it actually is, at least the way I was conceiving transcendence through your book. So the, the one word of the alternate names for transcendent experience is that I sort of maybe understand the most intuitively is the de-automization one, which might be surprising. It sounds sort of technical, right? But the way I understand that, and you tell me like what I have wrong here, and I think I've asked you a similar question to this before, is the, and to bring in more uh, philosophy, Wilfred Sellers wrote this seminal essay about trying to, to, to you know, encompass what the, the enterprise of philosophy even is. And he talked about the manifest self versus the scientific self or the manifest view of man versus the scientific view of man. And I think it's a fancy way of recasting sort of the famous mind-body problem, that there is a way that you can describe what we are in purely scientific terms um, and explain how we came to be sort of with a full picture of evolution and a, de a deterministic kind of billiard balls approach that certainly leaves no room for something like a libertarian free will or a soul to intervene and drive the ship. We are animals. We come from microbes and muck. This kind of like, you know, we're just star stuff. I've said this before on the podcast, but it's the difference we saying between saying we're just star stuff in kind of this scientifically reduced way versus we're just star stuff. Yeah. Which in it's which like just She's the different. emphasis of like injecting this magic of like, while that's true, and this is what Sellers would call the scientific view of man, it's manifestly true somehow that I don't feel that way. I feel like a self. I feel like a soul. I feel like a homunculus somewhere in my brain or something like that. Um, and and then the the enterprise of philosophy if there is one, is to try to somehow build a bridge between the manifest view and the scientific view. And so this de-automization word, to me, I understand it to mean a, a admission that there is something like a deterministic universe and an automized kind of behavior that we are, we're instinct, I'm responding to the stimuli around me in some way that is beyond my ability to intervene in. But de-automizing it, is somehow fighting against that. And if it makes sense, transcending the relentless pressure and drive of knowing that I'm an evolved animal and I am, and I do not have free will, but somehow fighting against it and transcending it to the point where, I don't know, I'm in some other place where at least the illusion of it grabs control in some ways. Did that make any sense? It's the one that makes sense to me. It makes complete sense. Uh, one of my favorite books is Keith Stanovich's book called The Robot's Rebellion. And his title, the title mm. of his book tells it all. He has this, this dual process theory model of, of human consciousness, which is uh, human cognition, which is something that um, I based a lot of my uh, dissertation PhD work on, um, mm. where we have a system one that is very automatic um, and a system two that allows us to override that automaticity and um, it allows us to uh, have metacognition and uh, become aware of ourselves. And the robot's rebellion is that we're rebelling against those automatic tendencies. You know, the, the rebellion is, 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 in, is having system two kind mm -hmm. of override system one. But in a more um, cosmically humorous way, I think that there's something really cheeky 
about a species. I, I'm an absurdist, so I, that's how I think about almost everything. I think there's something really cheeky about um, about a species that can uh, live in a purely meaningless universe and say, you know, fuck you, I'm going to find meaning in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to actually, I'm going to rebel. There's something really rebellious about that that gets me really excited. You know, it's like we really are rebelling against the universe mm-hmm. um the universe doesn't care so i guess in a sense can you rebel against something it doesn't really actually care that you're rebelling but but that's almost the absurdist part of it is that yeah. you know we, uh, precisely because the universe doesn't care um us uh, we, we're free to choose how we actually want to live our lives which is yeah. something beautiful about that yeah well Kurt Vonnegut is my favorite writer growing up, so the absurdist, yeah, and he, he, as maybe a personal anecdote, he was probably the first thinker that I encountered as a young teenager who made me feel, you know, less alone, that these kind of crazy thoughts I was having and questions I was having, and the absurdity of it all was being also recognized out there. Um, It reminds me, as you were talking, I don't know, Cat's Cradle, if you've read it, and at the end of Cat's Cradle, where this this crazy religion called Bokanonism, I can never pronounce it, in this island, and they were looking for this messiah named Bokanon, and he's on his back at the the very last phrase of it is he's on his back they find him after like the world has collapsed with this ice nine thing um thumbing his nose at god in the sky and it's and it's totally this just like you know absurdist ending to the human condition that all of this effort ultimately is in vain but what else are we going to do other than try to just pretend and inject that it has meaning it's like the only game in town that's exactly right i mean there is another game in town called suicide you're right. You know, right. so, but, but this is the thing. This is why I love philosophers because they, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the, the big question, you know, was sh- shall I kill myself or drink my morning coffee? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and there's something so beautiful about that question because, you know, you're choosing to find meaning in your coffee. If you choose mm. the, if you choose them, because you can choose suicide anytime you want. I could jump off this balcony right now and this, what, what an ending to my life this would be having a podcast with you, you know? Don't and, do it, Scott. No, well, I don't, I, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not going to do it because I don't want right. to. I would actually, that my point here is I would actually rather after this podcast, I'd rather sit down and have my matcha tea. It's mm. a little tiny thing, matcha tea, like who gives a shit about matcha tea? But, but I actually would prefer the meaning that I can make out of something as small as that than not existing forever, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's how I, I, I've i conceived of, his, of it as well. So then then to, to push even further on this automization thing, because I guess, I guess I still like it and I'm conceiving it correctly. This is something that I think you've pushed back on me before about an understanding of it, because maybe I'm being too simplistic. I know you just laid out the first... Or maybe I'm being uh, too simplistic. <laughs> we'll let's see. see, let's see. <laughs> but the first... Um, uh, system or system one thinking versus system two thinking. Yeah. I think it's a similar idea, but I've, I've always wondered in myself about this. Um, I, I don't even know if it's the right word, second order desires. I think I told you this is something we might talk about of the meta questions, like you said, of which are really the, what do you want to want questions, right? You, you, you can explain why I want a second, you know, donut, because evolution has ingrained me to want sugar and on the plains it was very rare and so I have this instinct and I want it and it delivers dopamine and that's very first order stuff but the second order level of desires of like do I want to want that donut and if it is the process of self-actualization a process of 
um, I don't know, not just fooling yourself into or tricking yourself into wanting to want the things that that, you know, you, you should, if philosophy tells you you should, uh, but actually wanting it, actually trying to shift and align your behaviors to want those things. Or is that is that too high of a bar? Am I setting up failure for everybody to the point where we just give up? You're, you're asking a, you're asking a very deep question, which is, by the way, that's the value of philosophers is they ask they come up with the good questions. Psychologists can try to answer them. You try to them. answer them, yeah. <laughs> but um, philosophers, I really like that. Um, you know, it's such an interesting question, I think, from a, from a, a neurological perspective. What is, what is the you that wants to right. want something? And then what is the you, the third order desire, you know, sometimes gets in the way too, which is like, mm -hmm. you really want to not want to want something. <laughs> it gets me messy. Humans mm -hmm. are messy, but who is that? Which is the real you? So this, this gets to a lot of questions. You open up a Pandora's box of questions that I'm fascinated in, which is, mm -hmm. is there such a thing as a real you? What is authenticity? Um, when you're um, eating your chocolate cake, uh, why is that not authentic? You're, I mean, it's an authentic desire. So right. I don't understand people who say, oh, this isn't the real me, you know, that I slept with that girl last night. That wasn't the real me. You know, I made <laughs> a poor decision, you know, but no, that was that was uh, authentically you last night, you know. Um, so um, so I think about a lot of this. and I've come to the conclusion there is no real you. Um, mm -hmm. There are, um, you know, we're such complex beings. We have multiple um, evolutionary drives that uh, some of them are competing with each other, depending on the trigger. Um, so for instance, you know, we evolved, we have a long history, we evolved the, um, uh, the lust drive. We also evolved the caretaking drive, mm -hmm. you know, let's just take those two drives. Those can come into conflict in a relationship, <laughs> you know, like sometimes mm -hmm. we can love someone more romantically than we want to have sex with them, but we want to have sex with someone else, you know, um, instead, you know, and then that creates all sort of havoc. Sometimes we have lust, but we don't really care about the person. And then they want us to care more about it. Look, there's so many ways that, that our yeah. evolutionary drives, um, create these, what are, what, uh, Karen Horney, the psychoanalyst called inner conflicts. So the question is, who, what is the thing that's deciding amongst the inner conflict? You know, I'm getting to your question, but I wanted mm, to mm. kind of, you know, situate it within the context of all the things I'm fascinated and to, fascinated about as well. So what what is that? So I think that this is where values come into play. Values are conscious. Values are, you know, regardless of what you how you feel authentically, you can make a decision. You know, you can make a commitment to being a good person. Any, mm -hmm. Anyone can make that, like a serial killer has the free will, I think, I would argue, to wake mm -hmm. up tomorrow. Like if there are any serial killers listening to this podcast right now, I want them to know that prime audience <laughs> i know it's a ridiculous i'm absurdist i know i'm saying ridiculous things some of my examples are oh, ridiculous but i hope you you understand i don't have a filter yeah. okay so like you know if someone's you know a serial killer they may feel like they don't have free but i want them to know they they do actually have the capacity to wake up tomorrow and make a value commitment to i want to be a good person from now mm -hmm. on the rest of my life mm -hmm. you know um you know that, that's obviously a very extreme example but i think that like if someone um, you know, a lot of these uh, rational altruists, 
um, are, are amazing people. I, I, I have buddies with this guy called Spencer Greenberg, who was on my podcast. Who's a I know kind Spencer, of, yeah. Oh, he's yeah. such a good guy. And uh, yeah. he's doing amazing stuff in the world. And, and, I, and I have conversations with him. And he's so rational about all of his altruism and helping. And he doesn't necessarily, you don't like, feel, he doesn't feel the compassion necessary for everything. But he's com- computed that it's going to be the most value to the world if he makes X, Y decision. And I think a lot of that is just coming down to values and being like, why my value is I want to help the most amount of people so then so many things kind of follow from that which um, help us decide what our second order desires are but we have to make that conscious decision here's the really interesting question I keep passing the buck here what is making the decision that you want to have the value that you want to be a good person yeah well let's let's turtles all the way down yeah, Spencer Greenberg. <laughs> By the way, a little trivia about Spencer Greenberg. He's the grandson of Hank Greenberg, the yeah. famous baseball player, baseball maybe the best player. J- Jewish baseball player of all time. Um, That's but, right. Uh, and and yeah, his, you, his mother you know is Georgia yeah. Shreve, who yeah. I want to plug as well, who's a, 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 a librettist. Uh, uh, yeah. She writes music. She's a polymath, a wonderful person. Good, good stock, that Spencer. Good stock. Um, here's the, the, the point to get into. I think we're on it. And it's something that... Um, it's a paradox of the maybe it's the limits of language and maybe we're at sort of an impossible uh, point here but terms like self-help self-actualization self-transcendence if that's a thing yeah the the like obvious um (laughs) fly in the ointment of that language for people who who think about it deeply or philosophers is that we always also always talk about how the self is an illusion and the self doesn't exist. <laughs> so what the hell are you talking about when you're talking about self-help? The self is an illusion. How do we square that circle? I think you know how to do it, but I want you to try to put it in language first. But it seems like this like obvious, like mm. people should be screaming their heads off at the self-help section where half the books are like the self doesn't exist. The other half is like, here's how you help yourself. Well, the great paradox of, uh, I'm writing an article right now um, on spiritual narcissism. Uh, (laughs) I'm working this article for Scientific American right now, and uh, I'll share it it with you when it comes out. But one of the great paradoxes, like those who are most uh, confidently say there's no such thing as a self, in my view, they tend to be the most narcissistic people, you know, like the gur- like these gurus and then like end up, you know, abusing everyone, you know, and they're like, no yeah. such thing as a self. And then they like, obviously their self is, or their ego is, is making decisions for them. So um, really interested in this. And I, I think my books, uh, my, my book on transcendence may, very much makes clear there is, I do think there is such, you know, like, like the, the, the ultimate form of transcendence is one that rests on a, a healthy sense of self, not mm-hmm. a self that you, that is, that is, that evaporates, but one that you, well, I just want to, uh, before you even go and I want to pin it, you said it very, a sense of self correct. versus, right. So I don't Which think different me, from a metaphysical like, yeah. claim, I don't yeah. think there exists a self, but I think there right. exists a cognitive representation of mm-hmm. oneself. This is the beauty of metacognition. This is this is the amazing thing that why the BA10 of I mean, we know this is this this allows it to happen. This is why the you know, thing differentiating us from turtles when it comes to the ability to do that is BA10, you know, broad broadman's area 10, the latest to evolve. You know, it allows us to look down and reflect on ourselves and make an evaluative judgment. That's all we're doing. That's all it is. There's a self-representation um, you know, or self one could call it a self-concept that we have of our overall you know who we are. Um, some people have a, a low. That's what it means to have a low self-esteem. It means your evaluative sense of self is very low. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and unstable and uncertain. 
you, you don't it, it, actually there's no such thing as a low self-esteem there's only high and uncertain so it turns out um, on self-report questionnaires uh, very few people actually put one out of five you know in mm. terms of low self-esteem it's usually at the midpoint or the high point so either either you have a secure self-esteem and you say yeah it's high um, you know it's good or you have a, a quote low self-esteem and it's really just like Yes, some it's so contingent. It's like sometimes mm. you know I feel good about myself, and then sometimes I don't feel good about myself. You know, it's really so dependent on who likes me. You know, or like am I achieving? Mm-hmm. Am I mastering things? Um, whereas people with a generally high self-esteem tend to not be so uh, dependent on all these different contingencies. So I do think there is a self-representation. It's not a physical physical thing. It is a it is a manifestation of brain waves for sure i mean mm-hmm. because we know that when we die well I, we don't know that i guess <laughs> as you know have you experimented as, yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> well, i might be wrong but it seems right. like when the those brain waves are no longer able to uh, operate we don't have a sense of self anymore and that's that's the truly terrifying thing of the when people fear the death that's what they actually fear is never having a sense of self ever again which is so paradoxical because anyone who gets in a situation where they lose that that sense of self like through LSD or other things actually lose their fear of death yeah so that's a fascinating paradox yeah. to me as well i'll stop yeah, there yeah. And, and i hope that's enough to riff off no, it's enough to riff off. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it answers any of our questions. Uh, the, yes, you were careful with the representation of self and a sense of self, which, yes, I don't think we can deny. But I guess if you could fold in the other really fascinating thread that you were, that you were tugging on of the authentic self, of which one, if any, is there such a thing True as an self. authentic self? And is that, is that the key to what you mean by transcendence well because i don't think there's uh, there there is such a thing as the one true self doesn't mean that i don't think there are sides of ourselves that uh where we feel most alive energized creative self-actualized um i don't think we feel particularly self-actualized when we're eating chocolate you know, we can rule out a lot of states of consciousness where I don't think we feel like we're self-actualizing, you know, mm. uh, we're just sitting watching Netflix and binge watching, you know, um, yeah. it's entertainment, but I don't think we're feeling like we're self-actualizing, you know. Yeah. So I think there are um, modes of consciousness uh, and modes of being in the world where we um, are realizing our unique potential. Uh, that's what we really want to feel. You know, people, you know, have such a strong need to matter. I don't know if you've yeah. noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Meh. <laughs> yeah, people really people like humans like really care about that shit you know like yeah. they re- every person wants i matter i re- respect respect me respect yeah. me i'm this i'm that i'm this that and the other right everyone mm-hmm. thinks that their thing matters probably more than anyone else's thing that they think this matters and then so you have all these people in this world fighting with each other and killing each other over who matters more as opposed yeah. to just recognizing well we actually all matter either we all matter or we all don't matter you <laughs> know Mm. I like to go with we all matter, you know, Um, and and by the way, this is not like an all lives matter argument I'm making right now. So please don't, (laughs) don't, don't. I didn't even go there. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I want to be made clear. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, I'm not denigrating any, any, anyone who does say that their specific cause matters. I'm not denigrating that at all because I think that's, that's quite right. But, but everyone, but it's such a fundamental human need that pervades so much of what we do in life, even at a subconscious level um, often that 
we really feel most authentic when we are uniquely um, mattering in the world in some special way that uh, we feel like we exist. We want to feel alive. Does that make sense? And is it, it makes total sense to me. I mean, I want to sharpen it a little more before I I press on it. Is it, do you think it's, um, I mean, I want to, I want to shift it to what you think is objective about what you just said and maybe universal and sort of a universal experience rather than sort of people can have different views in there. Cause I, I, I'd certainly grok what you're saying, but I don't know if everybody does. Do you think the mattering, does it matter? (laughs) I won't avoid this problem. Does it matter who you matter to or what you matter to? Can you matter to the universe, which we are both sort of saying upon further investigation really doesn't care. There is, it doesn't care that you're there. Is it really, are you, do you have to matter to other people or can you just matter cosmically because of some ability that you have as a human to um, even ask the question in the first place? What, What would it mean to matter cosmically? Um, you well, have something to the, contribute to the growth of the universe. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try. I mean, those. That's a funny. It's know. a funny. Like, let's unpack that idea. That's funny. It's like you know, I don't just have a purpose for yeah. man for humankind. I actually, you know, like can fundamentally alter the orbit of the uh, different <laughs> planets. Well, that way, certain people certainly feel that if you if you're familiar with the secret and um, uh, the Do they think uh, that, really? law of attraction, I think it's sort of like a direct claim to want wow. to actually have that kind of ability. But no, on a lesser sort of um, snarky uh, response from me, it would be um, I'm a huge fan of David Deutsch for anyone who obviously listens to me, but he puts a lot of emphasis on knowledge creation and our ability as whatever kind of animal we are to create knowledge and universal knowledge and uh, knowledge being um, the appearance of knowledge, the phenomena of knowledge as a natural phenomenon being the most significant phenomenon in the universe. Like, don't tell me about supernova. It's nothing compared to what knowledge can do, where the the only thing preventing us little monkey creatures from reorganizing all of the atoms in the Milky Way to be a giant space station of some sort doing whatever we needed it to do to create multiverses or something is the knowledge of how to do it as long as it doesn't break the laws of physics, which it probably doesn't. There's just a ton of knowledge we would need to gather in order to do that. Already, we're doing pretty incredible things with our knowledge, certainly. Um, And this phenomenon, the appearance of it in the universe is incredibly rare, incredibly rare and incredibly unique and insanely powerful. He would make a case that it's infinitely powerful using his mathematical sort of uh, dive into that. Um, And that on its own is an interesting pushback. I know, well, well, I'm sort of combining other threads here of, uh, you know, the the grounding of a lot of your work is humanistic uh, psychology and that sort of field. It's recentering the human and our ability, not maybe our cosmic sort of mattering, but our ability as really um, center stage as a main player in the objective universe physically, whatever that means. Again, I, you know, I, I didn't really put a, a mattering meaning into the universe there, but certainly a uniqueness and a specialness. Um, and it's a, it's a way of scientifically without invoking any supernatural uh, abilities that we, we have just purely potentially natural ones um, as being important, let's say, and a pushback on a lot of the philosophies and I think mistakes people make of pushing the human down to some level as just an animal and just 
a meaningless piece of this this universe that's just sort of along for the ride. We're actually quite central players. So, I mean, that would be my case if there was one, if you were the only human on earth and you mattered, or you were trying to invent matter, if you, you, if you had no social world at all, could you still matter somehow? That's a great question. That would be my case, yeah. That would be my case well, of like, well, matter, you have this ability, yeah. I feel like you do have to matter to someone in order to matter. Mm. You know, like, maybe if there are no other humans, maybe you could still matter to, like, the, you know, other species or plants, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it is, it, it seems like a very relative, it seems, not relative, but a, uh, a, a, a matter of connection, a matter of um, con- like connections between different nodes mm. and networks. Um, Roy Baumeister talks a lot about um, the human search for meaning. I mean, it's all about connections. You know, it's hard to have meaning without connections, social connections. Um, the mattering thing really does seem to seem to be a mattering to someone um, uh, that that cares. Mm. You know, the the universe is so indifferent that it doesn't seem like it's hard it's hard to like feel like you matter if you don't get recognized for it as well that's another interesting thing and i'm always fascinated by people who help so help others so unselfishly um Mm. it's uh you see a lot of communal narcissism which is a a sub a form of narcissism where you know you're you're really more motivated to help others so that you can have self-enhancement but i'm very interested in those who help not through modes of not for reasons of self-enhancement, but they generally generally uh, just enjoy it, and yeah. it, it's not even because they need to matter. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when once we once we kind of disassociate. I think a part of the project of transcendence is is not caring so much about mattering, as well. Right, <laughs> right. Ironically, yeah. Well, is it maybe my question wasn't so well formed? Um, the notion of awe in your book and feelings of awe is that. Am I off base? That's not mattering. That's just a good feeling, right? Like, because I guess that's what I was getting at. Good vibes. Well, if you have the ability to create knowledge and you were the only sentient creature in the universe and you were experiencing some kind of awe just by figuring out the puzzle of the universe that you are in, which you could do using your knowledge creation ability, would that awe be enough to... Yeah, get you off and and be self actualized without mattering to anyone else. I guess that 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 was like my I see. absurd yeah question. You know, you're getting into some deep territory because the question is: Do you have to matter in order for your life to matter? Hmm. This is the question you're really asking me, and I don't think you do. You know, I think that one, I think life is, I actually, I tweeted something along these lines the other day. I don't think there, those who are so desperately trying to find the point of existence or point of life are asking the right question. I think it's more that we have been given uh, and blessed a gift of being able to witness our own lives. Mm. And that's something to... Uh, be mindful of and to be deeply grateful for and to enjoy the experience of existence. Um, Not that we'll always enjoy it, you know, there'll be a lot of pain, right? But but just be aware, you know, to be giving the gift of, of for this very short period of time to be aware of our own existence is such a miraculous and beautiful thing considering how much time um, before that happened existed and how much time is going to happen after you know, mm-hmm. uh, you think that we just 
you know, that short, that short amount of time. So I think, I don't think that you have to matter in some sort of grandiose, you know, how many followers do you have on Twitter? How many, how many companies did you start? All these things that most people get really caught up in, in order for your, in order for life to matter. Yeah. So I do think having a, a lot of all experiences makes make in and of itself is part of what is miraculous about life and 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 why it is such a experience to be alive. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Do you worry to bring us to more of a societal question? I was listening to your um, take or your talk through your own book with Sean Carroll and a few of your other things, and you use the the phrase the loneliness epidemic which um, I love. I, I think I was going to write an article with the same title. A lot of us are sort of feeling it vaguely somewhere out there. Do you worry that, well, tell, make the case that there is one, because I know you've gotten a little pushback on is there one or, or what does this really mean? Um, and how did we fall into this trap in particular? Well, I got, um, I got some, some pushback from... Steven Pinker, when I was writing my book on the loneliness epidemic part, I, I asked for his advice in some portions of my book and, and we we're talking on my podcast about it. And he's like, no, it's not an epidemic. Cause, Cause he's like really into like looking at the whole, um, history of the, of, of, of everything and yeah. zooming out, he zooms out as much as possible. And he's like, well, every generation has been lonely, you know, it's probably not an epidemic in the sense of more so than any other, but hmm. but we live in this we live in this epic you know so that's like okay fine technically maybe you're right Stephen Pinker but yeah. we are living through this and it, there are quite very 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 um, uh, significant detrimental um, health effects uh, not just psychological of course there's like depression but there are physical effects of prolonged loneliness. Um, it's a greater cause of mortality um, than like obesity and smoking. I mean, you can you can die from prolonged, profound loneliness and uh, the kind of effects of what it does on your body. You know, we're just starting to understand this mind-body connection. Mm-hmm. So, the, do we want to call it an epidemic? Well, it 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 really sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do I mean? Uh, and what do you think we is is driving that to a degree? I'll give you just an anecdote. You brought up Steven Pinker. One of my favorite debates that was actually terrible because it was like a missed a missed conversation. It was so close with Steven Pinker and Alain de Baton and uh, Matt Ridley. And, and I, yeah, Matt Ridley, you know it, and um, Malcolm Gladwell, who was frankly just sort of being a prick that night. But and he sort of like derailed it, which was a shame. The monk but, debate. The monk debate, you know it. Okay, so we'll give a brief. Oh, uh, I know it. Actually, Matt Ridley, my episode with Matt Ridley came out today on my podcast. Oh wow, great. Yeah. So, so the the it was Oxford style debating, and the motion that night was humanity's best days are ahead of us. Yep. Ridley and Pinker predictably took the side for the motion, and Dubaton and Gladwell were against the motion. And Dubaton and and Pinker in particular, I wish could do it again, and do it right, because. As you you know, Pinker laid out his arguments of uh, that you're talking about here of like the world is getting better. Look at all my charts. Infant mortality is down, and this and this and this and this. Well, how could you say this is not better? And of course, you win a debate doing that because you put your opponent in the position, Alain de Baton, of basically getting up 
and having to say like, well, you know, okay, starving children are on on the decline, but like my Xbox doesn't work and first world problems are real world problems too. And, you know, it just, it just doesn't work in a debate and he got kind of frustrated and flustered, but there's a great conversation to have in there and they missed it. And I hope to like recast it. One oh, I time agree. Maybe, yeah. And maybe we can do a little version well, of it. Well, if here we ever because- do a monk debate, I want you on my team. I'm I'm on. I'm ready. But I w- I want to be the moderator to be honest because I want to cuz I I've gotten I think pretty good at at um representing the the better version of someone's argument as they're struggling to make it. It's one of my maybe my philosophy trainings helping me there. Um but but that argument was not addressed by Pinker or anyone of the first world are real problems too. I guess this is what I was trying to just put on sort of a carrot for you to see if you would bite it with what's driving the loneliness epidemic. Um is it have we somehow been fooled and i want i want to get back to sort of your work with maslow here i know he never drew a pyramid and i'm not even going to invoke it but on some sort of hierarchy or or process of becoming self-actualized there seem to be a lot of false siren songs along the way and trap doors and you brought up watching netflix or eating chocolate or whatever it is we're certainly drowning in netflix and chocolate as a humanity and oh i sure am have you seen my stomach yeah, we're not going to do video here. Scott looks great to me, but he's Thank self-esteem you. just took a little hit there. Um, no, we could talk about the COVID nineteen if you want, but um, yeah. but but that's part of this process actually of like, wow, we're in it. We're in a pa- an actual pandemic, right? And we're all at home. But hey, look, we all have electricity and heat and Netflix and all this entertainment around. Is the loneliness epidemic a? Is it? Sort of a, a a being driven by being seduced by the flashy, I don't know, comforts around us that somehow are feeding those first order desires that we brought up earlier and preventing us from investigating or examining these potential meta desires of what do we want to want? Do I want to want to binge watch Netflix all night, even though, you know, it feels good, but, you know, I want to be able to stop. I always bring up the joke that people make on sites like Twitter of like, how do I get banned from this thing? It's a funny joke. Everybody gets it because you sort of like nod at the addiction or sort of like, you don't want to be here, dude, you could just close it. But it's like, please stop me from doing this thing. Um, But that to me, at least, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong. That seems to be what's driving the loneliness epidemic and maybe why Pinker also missed the same point that Debaton was trying to make that night on stage. Hmm. Well, first of all, there's a real just practical reason why some of you are lonely during during the the uh, epidemic during the COVID epidemic, um, and that's just obviously because people are socially isolated. So there is a real lack of uh, intimacy and uh, physical connection with others. Mm-hmm. Physical connection is huge, but this is obviously this uh, these trends and uh, what we see with with the, with the effects of loneliness transcend uh, the COVID. You know, they go back many, many years. And the question is, why are people so lonely? And I, I think in my, so my book, I talk about how people are don't I don't think they really know what will actually satisfy that loneliness. They hmm. try so many different things, thinking in a false belief that it will that that's what they're really seeking. And then they wonder why they're still deeply, deeply unfulfilled. Uh, it's very interesting. You look through the history of people with a lot of power, um, and they, you know, even at the most extreme example, when you have tyrants or um, leaders who, who, who demand people call them, my dear beloved leader. You know, um, 
and they still are profoundly lonely. You know, mm. there's kind of an unquenchable hole in their soul, you know, that they, they don't understand why it's, it's not, you know, all these people love me. Why is there not, why is it not quenching my, and then you people, you know, on Instagram and with like millions of followers, you know, and they're, and they, and then I watched a documentary about this, like one of the Instagram mm. uh, influencers and she's like, you know, why am I so lonely? You know, actually she's a, she's a cool quote. She said something like, I have so many likes on Instagram, but how about I start actually liking myself? <laughs> I thought that was great. I thought That's that was great. great. Um, and so I think that uh, there's so many different routes for belonging, acceptance, mm-hmm. self-esteem, when the only thing that really does it is intimacy. That's it. You know, yeah. no one's, and everyone is avoiding intimacy. Um, there, it, it, I think there's a real epidemic of avoidance of intimacy. I, let's talk about that. Yeah, you know? why do we vo- avoid it? What, what's... Yeah. Well, I really want to understand this because hmm. um, I haven't fully, it's a puzzle to me. I'm trying to really understand it. I'm trying to, um, you know, what are people afraid of? You know, when you look at dating apps, you look at Tinder, you look at uh, the, the dating scene today, um, everything is, uh, everyone's ghosting everyone, everyone's avoiding intimacy at all costs, they're looking for shortcuts. Um, I don't want to start sounding, you know, like... Uh, you know, like a preacher here, you know, a Christian preacher or something, because that's not where I'm coming from on this matter. But uh, so I'm not preaching anything. I'm just trying to understand, you know, why is everyone running away from the things that will actually bring them uh, a real deep sense of meaning in their Mm. lives and and, and will help quench that loneliness they feel in their soul. Um, People are running away from it. um, And I want to understand why. I mean, I'm not answering the question because I I haven't fully wrap my head around it but I'm, I'm trying to pose the question a bit yeah i mean do you think it has to do with i, I know in your book you um you quoted the famous denial of death book and it seems i mean maybe us philosophy minded people just always bring it back to like well death must answer this question you're asking and the fear of death is it is it something about the fear of abandonment or fear of death of with intimacy you is it as is it as banal as saying well you risk if if you love someone you risk them you know abandoning you and that hurts and so it's just some self-preservation mode um is that i mean it can't be that simple obviously you're saying you have a hundred people know what will make them less lonely which is like true openness and intimacy and vulnerability but yeah they're not doing it yeah the real real interrelatedness you know of a mutual connection uh, mm-hmm. where I care about you, you care about me. Um, when you have a need for belonging, uh, you may join various uh, political groups. You may join mm-hmm. um, violent extremism on a more extreme end, all sorts of things to in a desperate need to belong. Um, but it's very one-sided. You know, the, the you know try joining, you know, a, a far-left group and then, you start to question, like, well, actually, I don't think this is really making a lot of sense. You're going to be banished from the kingdom, mm-hmm. you know, like w- suddenly all your friends now aren't your friends anymore. You know, just because what, what what you just one tiny part of you just you question something. So, you know, that real intimacy means that I accept your whole self unconditionally. You accept my whole self unconditionally. And we have a, and we can have we trust each other to uh, disclose um, you know, our innermost secrets in a sort of way. That's that's what intimacy is. And that's what 
ultimately makes people feel fulfilled when they have that. And what, that's what they really deep down want, even though they don't know it, that they want it. Um, it's, it's sort of like a Steve Jobs thing. You know, he's like, um, no one knew that they wanted the iPhone. <laughs> But when I present it to them, they're like, oh, that's what I, what I really want. You know, he, he always had that thing. You have to show people what they want. I feel like, yeah. you know, we have to do a better job as psychologists, as, as politicians, uh, whoever's in a position of making policies. We have to do a better job of showing people why what they really want is intimacy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so that... You know what I mean? That's... I know what you mean. It seems like I'm trying to put it into sort of practical terms because there is a... Um, it seems what we have to understand or get over is the almost paternalistic feeling to that of, of like, you don't know what you want. I'll show you what, I mean, the danger of a guru, <laughs> guru, guru that, yeah. that you mentioned before yeah, being like, dissolve yourself. You have no desires. It's very, it's very um, manipulatable and you could take advantage of someone in that state for sure. And so people are, are wary of it. Um, and yeah, maybe it is just like the shortcuts and the of watching Netflix and like the halfway there and distracting yourself. I've been I'll throw something else at you because I've been really obsessing over um, language and turns of phrase and how much philosophy of mind is is totally injected into our just now sort of like rule of thumb language games that we play. I'll give you one that came that someone said recently. Uh, I think it was in a political conversation, but it doesn't matter. They said something like, I hope they come to their senses. And just that phrase, they come to their senses, is such a, like, I, my mind just, like, ruminated on it for a day. Of like, what the, what does that even mean when you drill into it? Who is the they? And what are their senses? And what does it mean? And, and what does they coming to their senses mean? Are they not their senses? What is this crazy thing? It sort of implies that um, they are disconnected from literally their sensory data that's coming through their eyes and ears and fingers. There's a world out there. And when they come to it, whoever they is, like their sense of self, whatever, aligns somehow with their physical self. They just merge somehow. Then they'll be back sort of, you know, with us here in reality, in our sort of shared reality. And there's a lot of phrases like that that I've been sort of... um, obsessing over uh, of of this notion of uh, that I think relate to these ideas of intim- intimacy and mm-hmm. what is the self and where are you it seems like being in it, when you bring up intimacy and maybe this is a question for you we it conjures images of, of romantic love and sort of one-on-one friendships and relationships but I think you're also suggesting it's possible to live in sort of a intimacy mode where you're open or does it require someone else receiving it at all times that you're 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 the witness of someone else's intimate openness versus just being your own is it possible to 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 dissolve yourself come to your senses in that way where there is no longer a distance between you and your senses where you're then inherently in some sort of intimacy mode did that make sense yes yes i do i do think so that's what uh, Maslow called be love, right? Love for the being of others, um, or uh, Martin Buber uh, talked about. You can have different kinds of relationships with people and and things. You know, plants. Mm-hmm. Um, you you can have an you know I it relationship where you treat everything as an object, you know, uh, or something just to be manipulated. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, an I thou relationship is one you can have with 
anything with trees with humans with anyone that you encounter in the world you know um people i i really highly recommend people uh who want to who want to know more about what i mean by intimacy you know read more about the i thou relationship and what the, what what the what the nature of that is, looks like mm. so with the, can we get to some practical stuff that you do to try to achieve these things to like bring our heads from the clouds a little bit i've been doing some little things i'll tell you about after you share with me but like edibles what <laughs> oh you you oh just like thc edibles yeah yeah and you haven't done psychedelics yet, right? This was something I think I heard on some other podcast. You're, you're afraid you're just like, I said that much. on Sam Harris's podcast. Oh, right. Um, yeah. Did you listen to that episode? I listened. I think I listened to the whole thing. Yeah, it was quite good. But yes, you, you said you're just afraid of sort of like opening the floodgates. That's of right. Yeah, yeah. Love or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like him, I don't. Yeah, it's not like an unfounded fear. I've been um, I've been having some very good experiences with psilocybin lately, but on a much smaller level about what you were just saying, I've tried to um, start my days with just a little simple meditation. I'm not a big meditator, um, but I've been watching, um, you know, those those YouTube compilation videos of like faith in humanity restored or like random acts of kindness where they play like sappy music. Inspirational. Yeah, I love that. I'm a sucker for those videos. videos of like kids with cochlear implants hearing for the first time or putting yeah, on those I and I cry every time yeah. I've been trying to like start my days by like st- that. watching that and I cry just about every morning now I love that that's what a good idea really? that is what a good idea that is um you know for me it's it, it I mean I, there's some there's like dispositional aspects to this you know some people are different places in this i've i have a disposition where i really um like i want to connect with like everyone that i meet mm-hmm. you know and um you know i i kind of i do walk around in this kind of state of awe and wonder at at, at everything around me uh to uh to maybe it's ch- like a childlike degree you know like my mm. friends who hang out with me you know i'll be like Oh, let's go do this. You know, maybe I can be spontaneous, even just a bit impulsive sometimes as well. I admit, but um, uh, there's there's this little kid in me that never went away, and yeah. so it it, it kind of makes it easier without you know doing practices, you know, or things. Um, but uh, also you know sometimes just writing like loving things even on Twitter, you know, hmm. like starting first even if you're not in the mood. Sometimes it's it's like the, the the pencil thing. If you put a pencil in your mouth so that you 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 have the shape of a smile on your face, people report being happier <laughs> yeah. because they the, they smiled and then it gives a signal to their brain that they're happy, <laughs> even though yeah. it, they're fooling their brain, their own brain. You can I think you can fool your own love system sometimes if you want more be love by just doing something loving, even if you don't feel it. And then you trick your brain into thinking you're a loving person, and then you start to feel it. <laughs> we, to to bring a callback of Kurt Vonnegut, one of my favorite quotes is just "We are what we pretend to be." So, so then there you go. He, I think you could do this with dogs too. You wag their tails for them, and they get happier. I don't know. Maybe it's just, it's cool. It's like, I didn't know about that. I think I think that's right. Don't you're the psychologist. You could you could quote me on that. Um, but um. Like yeah, on on that note, you because you've talked. I want to ask you what you fail at in this regard, because you, especially in today's political madness, today in fact, I've been having a very difficult day doing something that you preach of like leading with compassion, and 
this is I'll release this pretty soon, but I, so I don't know how this will turn out. But I but I am so furious at the political situation and something like this lawsuit that Texas is bringing against the four states. And I've been reading. It's a pretty um, incredible day for American history. I think this one is going to go down in the books. Um, and it's so for me, so hard to keep and hold the notion of compassion for something like the AG of Texas who who wrote this just treacherous piece of litigation, if you ask me. Um, I struggle with that. And me tricking myself and smiling and like, I don't know, watching a video of him like, you know, crossing the street and someone helping him, that, that might feel good right now if I could find it to trick myself. But like, how, how do you intervene in the moments elite like that? I don't know if you struggle with that kind of thing. You're, you're always preaching like lead with compassion start with compassion. It makes sense, but man, it's a challenge these days. How do you have compassion versus something that you don't have compassion for? Is that the question? <laughs> I guess just kind of, I, where do you struggle with it? Yeah. How do you well, intervene? First of, all, and, yeah. first of all, I'm very weird. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, and I don't say that in some sort of like, I'm a supreme being compassion. I mean, yeah, I have, you know, I've got a lot of Michigana. So I'm certainly not saying making that argument, but like, um, I I am weird in this sense. I don't care about politics. Like, I, I almost feel like that's so taboo to say that you, you say that you know right now. Like, I care about the truth. You know, mm-hmm. there are certain things that light me up, and there are certain things that don't light me up. I feel like my eyes glaze when, when politics comes up. My eyes glaze over. Like, I know that that's like I'm supposed to care. You know, I know there's something I'm supposed to get into it and take this side and take mm-hmm. that side and then fight. But I glaze over. I light up when when idea when we're discussing ideas. I lit up a lot in this conversation today. You brought up some really interesting things that I love thinking through, and that lit me up. You know that that's what lights me up is um, is, is is a joint a joint uh, uh, search for the truth. You know, like in like a yeah. in like a in in, in a in a collegial, you know, coordinated way, you know, like, oh, let's all get at this together and see what's going on here versus, um, oh, let's, you know what I don't like? I don't like coalitions. I don't like all this coalitional stuff going on right now. Yeah. And um, I just don't like it. I want to be, I want to be friends with everyone. I want to connect with everyone. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think. And I, and it, that's taboo to say that, you know, like I'm, I'm supposed to only, you know, you're only supposed to like that person, Scott, you, you can't associate with that person because if you associate with, with Coleman, you know, like that'll get you in trouble with that group. And then it's all, it makes my head spin. Like I, I'm yeah. a little bit on the autism spectrum, so I don't, um, I can't, keep in my working memory all these complicated social dynamics i just want like like just like let's just all be friends and (laughs) do you know what i mean yeah uh, totally i want some of whatever you're taking send me some edibles whatever's getting you there um yeah yeah, absolutely um the yeah there there is that meditation sort of practice of um the compassion meditation where you think about someone you love and think about them dearly and you start there and then you sort of go to the next step where you think about maybe like a friend and then you think about compassion for them and it's quite easy. And then you think about a stranger and it's still pretty easy getting a little harder. Then you think about someone you don't like and it gets harder. And by the end you're trying to draw up compassion for like people you despise, but you're really supposed to get into it and 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 i like the idea of it i don't know if i've ever really fully tried the full meditations on it it sounds like i think something's wrong with me (laughs) because i there's no i don't there's no one i don't like in this whole world isn't that a weird thing to say like there's no one i don't like 
Now, I don't, I don't have equally admiration for everyone, right. but the like even I'm fascinated by people. I'm just fascinated by people. You know, like um, if someone is you know as they are outside my window here, uh, outside my balcony. A lot of people with schizophrenia who are hallucinating, screaming at three in the morning, keeping me awake. I, I come to my balcony and I watch them maybe for an hour. I'm fascinated with what they're seeing. I'm like, what are they seeing right now? They're hallucinating. They're making these statements. Um, I don't. I don't get angry. I don't say like, how dare they interrupt my sleep? You know, like. Right. Um, there's just not a lot of people I hate. I don't like. You know, like. Uh, I know that there are sp- people in this world I'm supposed to not like. You know, and and I can mm-hmm. logically, rationally think of good reasons why I shouldn't like them, but. Um, uh, but for some reason, I don't really feel that. Hate, you know, hatred. I don't like hatred's not like a strong feeling that I have. Yeah. What's well, wrong with me? <laughs> what's wrong nothing. with me? <laughs> you, you, I think it's what's right with you. I guess I, I told you what we were going to talk about with Coleman. I was like, how is Scott such a good guy? I guess we just figured it out. It's like, I don't know, but I don't feel like I'm a good you're guy. Just, like, you're just not I'm not like, I don't feel I like I'm like a, you know, I don't feel like I'm like a nice guy quote. You know what I mean? Quote, nice guy. Like I speak my mind, you know, I'll mm. argue with you. I don't, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm that agreeable. You know, like, yeah. you know, maybe I'm reconceptualizing what a good person is, maybe then in a sense, because I don't, you know, um, usually we associate that with agreeableness, right? Or like, you know, I mean, I'm not, I, I can be kind of cantankerous, but I still, like, I want, you know, I want to put good in the world. I really want yeah. to. So last thing, because okay. we going like okay. almost an hour, and I know it's a really big one, but I realized I glossed over it and it was central to what I want to know about these ideas. We mentioned, we, well, we just did a lot on this conversation. I loved it too, but we talked about awe. We talked about intimacy. We talked about, you know, what, what you write in your book. What, I didn't want to just rehash your book, but peak experiences and all the stuff about that you put into transcendence and that Maslow wrote about. Um, but the question that I, that I forecast that I was going to ask you was about how universal these things are. Uh, Cause it seems like in a lot of the, the, if there are potential problems with this sort of lovely worldview and philosophy and psychology that you engage in, it's like, well, does everybody really get off on intimacy? Are you sure there is something like this awe that is a universal and objective, somehow good way to live? Like, wh- where do we pin those things? How how do we how do you Great talk question. about that kind of stuff where it's I know you don't think there's just one good way to be you write that very extensively in your book but are you still searching for what awe is in order to find a what you know Kant would say like a universal sort of principle or universalized kind of morality there wow what a great question because it I I do stress the individual differences uh exist and we we can't we can't deny that and people differ so much in what needs matter to them so just need fulfillment is not a good measure of the mark of someone's life satisfaction it's the extent to which their needs are unfulfilled and they care that those needs are unfulfilled Mm -hmm. so someone can have a very low need of fulfillment for like let's say self-esteem but they just don't have as much there's individual differences in that they don't have such a need for it whereas someone else might have the same lack you know and you know be like oh be harvey oswald you know like and right. be like oh well i'm not respected i'm not respected so i'm gonna kill the president you know and like um that was quoting me harvey oswald <laughs> it, wasn't... it was dead on yeah i think that's exactly how he sounded 
<laughs> like Cartman from South Park. Yeah. We're going to kill the president, Lee Harvey Oswald style. Yeah. But you know what I mean? There's these people who are like, I'm not, and they care so much. That's the need they care about. But there's equivalence mm-hmm. in every need. There are those who say, I'm love starved. I, I need love. I need love, you know? And like there, there's the equivalent of that. There's the equivalent of the person who, um, you know, uh, 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 safety, you know, I, I don't feel safe. Yeah. I don't feel safe anywhere, you know, like, and they're preoccupied with that need, you know, what my argument is, and uh, I want to see what you think about this is that there are transcenders in this world. They, there, in terms of individual differences, there are, there does exist individuals who are motivated by transcendence. Mm. That's their preoccupation, just as much as other these other people these other things i just mentioned they're preoccupied and they live in those worlds there are those that are preoccupied with um uh transcendence and they can become meaning starved uh they they can become purpose starved they can become uh maslow called this the uh the uh there are higher grumbles so there are lower grumbles i'm hungry uh no one respects me why why does nobody like me and there are higher grumbles which is why is there not more beauty in this world why mm. is there not more meaningfulness around? Why are people not good to each? Why are people so mean to each other? Those grumbles are a higher, more transcendent um, version, form of grumbles. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think it's on the same par as the lower grumbles. Okay, so the question then, though, is, are you saying transcenders is a, to simplify too complicated of a term, a kind of personality type, the way it's that there are other... It's a motivation. A motivation and a universal one, or you're saying no, a higher? All, okay. Well, you, they're all. I think all of these needs are universal, but there's still individual differences. Mm. So, I so do. everybody's on some spectrum of needing. Uh, is there's some portion of being a transcender? Correct. And right, and so. It, it the question was, is yeah. what? What is the prime? What is this? Is my question? What is your primary motivation in life? Right. This you know what's is, funny? So I took your test on oh. the what was it? What is it again? Selfactualizationtest.com. Yeah. I took I took it to prepare for you, which is actually is a series of sort of questions. And I think actually the ones about <clears throat> purpose were the ones that I was like the most neutral or negative on because because I, I just didn't know what to actually do with them. Um because I think my this is a there's a whole other can of worms, but I think my effort in life and why I'm interested in philosophy and religion and does God exist in these big questions that you would say, you know, if that itself is some sort of meta purpose of being like, like we were saying before, it's the only game in town is to try to figure out what the game in town is. (laughs) Some really (laughs) like meta question. And that's super fun for me. It's literally just like fun. Um, But, but, but I don't know if I would pin that, like, I don't know, maybe it's just the way, the way the questions were phrased. If I would pin that as sort of a specific purpose and, you know, I don't think it, I couldn't put it that way because I don't know what it is. I'm actually searching for it, which is the part that's actually interesting for me. Um, and if that's, if that's a sort of transcendence it thing, is. then it is. great. Yeah. I consider that one of the B values. Uh, transcenders yeah. are motivated by the B values. The B values can differ, but one of them is absolutely the search for truth. Um, yeah. And uh, that's a transcendent value in, in my book. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, as as like a dumb example, as you were talking about it, I didn't want to like make a farce of it, but it, you, you brought up Harvey Oswald. But yeah, if it's 
if these are not evenly distributed sort of needs that people have, and some people do have perverse needs that we, I'm putting a moral value on and some perverse need for like, you know, genocide or doing some terrible stuff. Well, clearly this is in conflict in a society with somebody who has a need to be loved and <laughs> not killed or whatever it is. Um, there's just an obvious political conflict there, which is maybe why, um, it's curious why you're, uh, I'm trying to drag the ideas into the real world, which has to, in some ways, drag along the whole, I admit, infuriating and boring conversation about political philosophy. But it's a, but it seems to have to come along for the ride of how do we structure a society in a way that can maximize all of these needs because they're going to con- they're going to come into conflict. That's why my question about universality is almost a utopian one of like, do you think there is some sort of perfect world where everybody's needs are are actually the same somehow and so we just need to figure that out yes and maximize all Maslow believed so Maslow believed that if we could mm. satisfy all these lower needs um then people their motivation would be looking forward to higher ceilings of human nature right the the reason why we see so much strife the reason why we see so much of this is because we live in societies where there is such unequal um satisfaction of these lower needs but if we could but but it starts to get into utopia ideas and uh and we all know that utopia ends up always sucking (laughs) so yeah um this you know maslow uh taught a course at at, uh, brandeis on utopia this was an idea Mm -hmm. that he was very interested in but he um he started to talk about um he called it eupsychia instead of utopia what would Mm -hmm. the ultimate world be where we satisfied psychological needs you know and uh, and he was building. He was starting to build a model of what a eupsychia uh, would look like—a eupsychia organization, workplace, school, uh, education. Um, I'm trying to trying to carry on that mantle yeah. to some degree. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that there's plenty of space for that world, meaning that like even if there's a variety of needs, and that a utopia would fall apart because you know it's going to demand that everybody has these same sort of cosmic needs right. it seems there's enough space that the transcenders can do what they're going to do while the other people yes. are going to do what they're going to do and we're, we don't need to bump into each other in these violent ways so damn much um but uh, i don't know what that yeah. looks like either you but can't I, use that word around me actually yeah well I, you're you're you don't are you anti-libertarian uh, I'm, I, I, so I'm working on well, I'm working on one, on a book, but I wrote this very long rambling essay um, on my, my site. Yeah, I think you'd like it called What Jay Thinks. That was an uh, an effort. I became fascinated and still I'm fascinated by the the counter enlightenment philosophers, which shouldn't be confused with anti enlightenment philosophers. These are people I think like Alain de Botton would fall into it, who aren't you know, throwing away the wins and the victories of, let's call it a libertarian sort of enlightenment philosophy, politics and economics and, you know, small L libertarian economics and globalism that way, uh, but worry about the, um, maybe the higher needs, what it really will deliver to us. And if it, if it might get us trapped. And I have this hunch that we this is why i asked these earlier questions about the loneliness epidemic that the kind of philosophies that we might need libertarianism and the kind of freedom that we've loved so far which i am a big fan of has done very well to reference our friend stephen pinker again getting the world fed and getting the world healthy and we're not quite there yet but you know about 13 percent of the world is still in extreme poverty like we'll finish we got to finish the job but i don't think any of us doubt that we will um, I doubt that it is going to be those same kind of philosophies that are going to deliver us 
the the next level of sort of humanity and utopia, whatever that might be. I don't know what exactly what they look like, and I'm not the first sort of person to worry about these things. But my bigger fear to the loneliness epidemic conversation earlier was that it may the the, the victories and wins of this this um, getting everybody fed and get, getting everybody electricity and toys and all this kind of stuff could could literally create the obstacles and hurdles that will prevent us from jumping to whatever we need to get to next. It's not, it's, it's in a weird way, a sort of pseudo Marxist idea who also gets, um, uh, degraded, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, I ended that first essay. It was a long essay laying out the first half. I have no idea what the second half is. <laughs> I'm working on it now, but uh, maybe you feel great. the same way of like, okay, what's next? I don't know, I do but it can't like- be what got us here is my point. I, I completely agree, and, I, and I'm very concerned about um, the, the use of social media and the rise yes. of social media in mm-hmm. future generations if we continue at the rate at which this is being used, these tools are being used um, yeah. to divide us. People yeah. are not aware of what this is doing to our species. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on uh, quite a Twitter break. I don't know if I'm ever going to go back, to be honest. And you know what? To wrap this up, and this is another thing. That, thank you for being my therapist today. I feel like I just pretty much you're doing you're doing your your, your therapy job. Um, but part of my reason for uh, a prolonged break, and again, I don't know if I'm going to go back. Was curious about what it was doing to my mind, where I realized I I was thinking in 240 characters, yeah. things that were coming out of my mouth, things that ideas that were formulating in my head were I was oh, yeah. consciously or subconsciously thinking, there. how will this fit into a tweet? And I kind of hated it, right? I was like, wait a minute, what happened? Like, why did I bracket? Why did I cut my little thing off into 240 characters? And I wanted to explore longer and let my mind go longer. And I think it's actually been helping and working. Uh, but the 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 dilemma that we're in of that everybody's hanging out on social media and then you miss people is, um, actually my fiance is off of all social media and she's kind of always has been. And she actually struggles with it. Not that she ever wants to go back, but she feels a little forgotten by the world and by her friends to, I don't want to embarrass her here, but she, um, she had a really rough day like a year ago on her birthday because like nobody wished her a happy birthday. And she realized Mm -hmm. it's like, she's not on social media anymore. And her friends didn't Didn't remember. Yeah. And it was kind of sad and kind of shitty. Um, they talked about it. She's She knows the dilemma. And she's also curious about me not being on it. Um, but isn't that just a sad, simple story that everybody could get immediately? Because we've all probably been the person who got the update on Facebook of like, hey, it's your friend's birthday. And you're like, oh, shit, cool. Happy birthday. And you totally don't know your friend's birthdays without that. Um, so it's like just sad for everybody there's, involved, there's frankly. There's something even there's something profoundly sad about this when, yeah. in, in, in the sense that that means you know people are feeling social pressures to wish you happy birthday they don't right, really want to wish you ha- they're not really wishing you a happy birthday they're seeing on the timeline that 50 of yeah. the other friends have wished that person a happy birthday and you feel like you have to get on it get in yeah. get in uh, me too me too happy birthday happy birthday oh yeah i haven't talked to you in 20 years but happy birthday yeah. there's pseudo caring going on and uh and then when that doesn't when that social uh system doesn't exist people aren't even uh caring about her enough to 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 to, to send her happy birthday you know because yeah. they remembered because they generally remembered so yeah. it's kind of heartbreaking and, and by the way if she listens to this podcast um i th- i think that this is just a problem with um with social media i i, I know that yeah. there are a lot of people who do care about her <laughs> but you yeah, know what i'm yeah. saying her, her birthday's march 1st by the way if anybody wants to flood her <laughs> with birthday wishes when it comes along absolutely um 
but uh yeah may- maybe we should wrap it up here we've been going for an hour and 20 almost i love this i mean we could talk to you all day this Likewise. is fantastic i feel like i i talked more than i usually do on these because i was actually excited so hopefully you weren't offended by, I by loved me it. stealing the I mic a little it. bit let's do it again yeah. someday yeah. I would love to do it again. Um, everyone probably knows you if they don't. You have your awesome psychology podcast and with tr- tremendous guests and you write books. Uh, Transcend is the one we talked about. Now you also wrote, what was it? Um, Ungifted. And Wired to Create. Yeah. Yeah. And you're probably working on something new and better now. I'm sure you're using your time wisely. Um, Scott, this was fun. Thanks, it was awesome. Um, neither of us live in New York now, I guess, anymore, but maybe we'll we'll bump into each other somewhere else. And um, That'll be great. I look forward to that day. So I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And here's what I was thinking as I was editing and listening back. I was thinking about that notion of intimacy that we got into and some sort of general intimacy mode that we can be in that I suggested. And this oddly simple question of why we avoid intimacy, even when Scott is sure that we all know that it is the very thing that we really crave the most. And when you couple this intimacy thing with our acknowledgement of just how open and vulnerable a person is in that state, you know, just how brittle that kind of moment is, how there's always this very fragile exploitability and danger of a nefarious guru taking advantage of it or the person witnessing that intimacy rejecting it or refusing it or even something like you reaching that kind of state in your own mind during meditation or something and some other part of yourself seems to sabotage it and drag you back into that you know bullying self mode and squashes that fleeting moment of intimacy. So with all these thoughts, I've been thinking about cults. <laughs> uh, if you know the story of the Jonestown tragedy, uh, it's as good as any example as I can think of for what I'm thinking about here. For those unfamiliar with the details of Jonestown, this was a group of people who formed what they would have called a religious organization and community fully racially integrated and committed to a kind of living off the land, equality driven by, you know, free love, super harmonious kind of thing, very hippie-ish stuff. And uh, they were led by the preacher Jim Jones. This group that they put together was called the People's Temple. And eventually they embarked on building a little physical community in Guyana in the jungle where over a thousand members lived and tried to build their own little utopia. The whole thing ended incredibly tragically, as you probably know, with 909 members knowingly drinking poisoned Kool-Aid that Jim Jones had prepared for them after they murdered a news crew who came to check out their supposed paradise, which had already started to crack and break apart with some members slipping disconcerting notes to the journalist about the conditions there and displaying a clear fear to express any kind of open criticism of the group or Jim Jones himself or anything like that. This, by any account at that time, had become what we would recognize as a cult. And it ended, of course, in one of the largest mass suicide events in human history and another failed utopia. But why am I bringing this up? 
I saw an excellent documentary a long while ago called Jonestown, The Life and Death of the People's Temple. PBS ended up distributing it, if you want to try to track it down and watch it. It contained interviews with a few surviving members, and uh, I just wanted to play this, this one really short clip from it uh, that has a few of them speaking about it. You know, looking back now, this is near the end of the film um, after the awful suicide moment had unfolded. There was nothing dignified about it. it. Had nothing to do with revolutionary suicide. Had nothing to do about making a fucking statement. It was just senseless waste, senseless waste and death. To whomever finds this note, collect all the tapes, all the writing, all the history, the story of this movement, this action must be examined over and over. We did not want this kind of ending. We wanted to live, to shine, to bring light to a world that is dying for a little bit of love. I never believed in heaven in my whole life. You know, that's not the way I operated. But when I was in Guyana, when I watched the sunrises, I actually thought there was a heaven on earth. And now I can't believe in heaven anymore. There's quiet as we leave this world. The sky is gray. People file by us slowly and take the somewhat bitter drink. Many more must drink. I'm saddened because it didn't work out, because it just seemed so beautiful. And I'll say this about November 18th. I felt I'd lost a family. And I knew I had lost my children. Man, that just really guts me every time. That quote from the, the letter, we wanted to live, to shine, to bring light to this world that is dying for a little bit of love. You know, it's just so terribly sad. But if you rewind Jonestown to when that woman believed in heaven as the sunrise in Guyana was coming up, I think there's something about an effort like that of Jonestown that is just, I don't know, admirable. It's like we're all doing our thing in society and trying our best to juggle the lower and higher grumbles, as Scott alluded to, and whatever kind of political arrangements we have. And then a little group of people out there are like really going for it or something like like they're really going for it. No money, open equality, pure intimacy embracing the self, loving the earth, all that, you know, transcendent stuff, all those weird alternate names like the living flame of love and the silence beyond sound, the stuff that I started the conversation with, with Scott. They're trying to really live it and put it together. And I don't doubt for a second that the people in these stories really achieve it. Even if just for a brief second, that fleeting moment, they believe in heaven on earth, as this woman pointed out. So perhaps it's just so sad and scary because from the outside, we all know how fragile this arrangement is and how it takes just a tiny bit of selfish exploitation to crash down the entire thing and how likely it will be to end badly. In the case of Jonestown, just how likely it was that Jim Jones himself, the figure who was the linchpin for the entire society, was actually 
badly compromised by narcissism and addiction and selfishness, etc. Still, you know, call this strange, but the conversation with Scott about transcendence kept bringing me back to the practical questions of political arrangements, which would allow it to manifest and somehow maximize transcendence for as many people as possible. And that maybe tellingly led me back to Jonestown. I hope that every effort to achieve that is not doomed. Anyway, there's plenty to do in our personal lives, which falls way short of building utopias in the jungle. And Scott's book is full of that kind of stuff on small scales and big scales. And even if it is hard to achieve, we ought to keep our eyes on those big prizes. So anyway, I wanted to try something a little different for an upcoming episode. I want to ask you for some of your ideas. I realized that I did that at the end of season one and got a lot of great ideas actually from you guys for future episode topics. Uh, But with COVID and a shuffle of my format, you know, I haven't really been able to pull them into full use yet. So I apologize for that, but I still have them and hopefully uh, season three, I can push some of them to the forefront. Uh, But what I wanted to ask this time was to try something a little different. In the opening segment of the episode prior to this one about campus free speech with uh, Sigal Ben Porath, I analyzed a single page from Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism that she had sent me. And I really love doing that kind of thing and taking on the challenge of really trying to understand a piece of philosophy and writing like that. So I was thinking of trying to do a future episode where I break down three or four single pages uh, from different philosophers or authors that you want me to try to take on. So I don't know if you have a page or a passage that you found or you know of that you'd be interested in me trying to take on on the show and break down and try to understand, uh, send it my way. I think it could be really fun. It could be something complex that you just want help understanding or something that you love or you hate or you think you understand or whatever it could be, something famous or obscure, serious, silly, whatever it is. I'm open to anything. I think it'd just be kind of fun. So send your pages and ideas for that kind of thing for me to tackle at dilemmaideas at gmail.com. So dilemmaideas at gmail.com. I'll keep an eye on it. Uh, That would be really awesome. I have no idea how it will work out or when I'll have enough and a good idea to put that out, but I'd love to give it a try. So anyway, I'm going to take another short break through the holiday season and come back after the new year with a few more episodes to wrap up season two. So until then, explore some transcendent experiences. 